In verse 4 we read, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Father, we're grateful for this truth. We know that our whole hope rests in you. You are the strength of our lives. You're the one who energizes us to live according to the word that we study here this morning. We know, Father, that whether we study from the first chapter of Genesis or the 22nd chapter of Revelation, there is instruction there for us in living the life of Christ in this world. And we know, Father, that we can only live that life as we are empowered by the Spirit of the living God. And so we humbly bow before you this morning, ask that your Holy Spirit will instruct each of our hearts today according to our need, according to your plan. Father, bless these moments together and bless the word as it's proclaimed throughout this property, throughout this city, and around the world today. We ask that many hearts will be transformed by your, by your power and that the evil one will be bound and his kingdom will be ruined. We thank you for who you are and for what you will do in Christ's name. Amen. If you will turn to the ninth chapter of the book of Judges, Judges chapter 9. What we have just come through is the story of Gideon. Gideon, uh, a man whom God raised up, a very unlikely person to be raised up, but one whom God chose to be the next Shaphat in Israel, the next deliverer. And by faith in God, and Gideon displayed great faith, faith that was based on fact, on reality, on, upon God's actual speaking to him. And Gideon successfully led Israel to victory, of course, the success coming from God. And Gideon died. And so often as it happened throughout the book of Judges, as we read it, we read in verse 34, going back to the 8th chapter, verse 33 in the 8th chapter, then it came about as soon as Gideon was dead, that the sons of Israel again played the harlot, with the Baals. Verse 34, Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of the enemy on every side. And then in the next verse it tells us they didn't show kindness to the household of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon. Talk about thankless. What is it? It's human nature. It's the real person coming through. It's what we all are save for the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives. So as we move on to the ninth chapter, we read a very tragic story, a very bloody story in many ways. So let's read the first few verses of the ninth chapter. And Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and spoke to them and to the whole clan of the household of his father, saying, Speak now in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem. Which is better for you, that seventy men, all the sons of Jerubbabel, rule over you, or that one man rule over you. Also remember that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem. And they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our relative, he is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver from the house of baal -bareth. 
with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows, and they followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem and all Beth Milo assembled together, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar which was in Shechem. The entire ninth chapter of the book of Judges deals with internal problems that developed within Israel because of two things, which we just read in the eighth chapter. Because of the apostasy of the nation, because they played the harlot again with the Baals, and because they did not honor Gideon. They did not honor this man who had been their deliverer, the one through whom God had worked to save them. I mean, how short is the memory? They had just been crushed under the heel of the Midianites, so much that they were living in caves. And even Gideon, as brave as he was, was threshing grain down in a wine press to hide. How quickly do they forget that? You know, because 40 years went by, and during those 40 years, they were no longer oppressed. It was like, hey, we've, we're on easy street now. We've got it made. We don't need God anymore. The more, more I read Scripture, the more and more I'm absolutely convinced that being a Christian is just like being a salmon trying to swim upstream. You've got to keep swimming. Because as soon as you stop swimming, it's all over. You're downstream. And Israel was downstream. Of Gideon's many sons, what we discover in this passage is that it was the son of a concubine who attempted to rule, to, to establish a ruling dynasty. And I think it was probably because he was the son of a concubine rather than of one of the full-fledged wives of Gideon that he sought to arrogate himself. I, I think he felt second class. Well, you know, uh, my half-brothers, they, they, they're all from wives, and, and my, my mother was just a concubine. A concubine was, was a very second-class person in a, in a relationship with a husband or a, I don't know what you call, somebody who had a concubine. <laughs> now, what is interesting is that, go, let me just turn back to uh, verse 31 of the previous chapter again. Talking about this, it says in 8th chapter, verse 31, his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him, that is, Gideon, a son, and he named him Abimelech. Abimelech. The wording there in that verse is literally, he appointed his name. Now, the question is, who is the he? We automatically interpret it as being Gideon gave him this name. But I think that's not true. It's very questionable <laughs> whether this name was given to him by Gideon or whether he applied it to himself. That is, Abimelech called himself by that name. Let me give you the reason I think that. First of all, never before in Scripture do we have any record of any Hebrew ever being called Abimelech. The Abimelech that we have in Scripture before was a title given to the Philistian kings, the kings of the Philistines. They were known as Abimelech, just like Egyptian king was known as Pharaoh. Pharaoh meant the one who lived in the great house. Uh, Abimelech was applied to the kings of the Philistines. It is, it's true, it's a Hebrew word, but it's still applied only to the kings of the Philistines before this time. It was never given to a person who was a Hebrew. Now, why not? Because of the meaning of the name, Abimelech. 
Father King. It can be interpreted two ways. Uh, I'm the father of a king or my father was king, which of course would be the way that this particular man uses the name. My father was king. You see, it's an attempt to give himself some kind of credit, some kind of status to make himself look worthy of the authority that he was claiming. My father was king. Well, was his father king? Was Gideon ever king in Israel? No, his father was never king in Israel. Gideon refused that honor. But he is making like, well, he may have refused that honor, but in reality he was king. Abimelech. Well, Abimelech knew that he would receive no support in Ophrah, where Gideon had lived and where much of the family was congregated, because his numerous half-brothers all had a more legitimate claim to any authority than he did because he was the son of a concubine. A concubine did not have the legal status in Israel that a wife had. So what did he do? He went back to Shechem. And remember I told you last time, Shechem was located about 25 miles south of Ophrah. Shechem is a very important town in the history of Israel because you remember we talked about it quite a bit. Well, some of you remember when we were doing Genesis a few years back and uh, how, how often Shechem showed up, you know, in the lives particularly of Abraham and of Jacob. And so he went back to Shechem, which was his mother's home. That's where her clan lived. They were a Shechemite clan. And so he went back there and he makes his claim there. Now what is interesting is that if you look at a map, you'll discover that Shechem was inside the territory of Manasseh. Manasseh is the tribe we're talking about. The Abizarites, which was the immediate clan of Gideon, were a clan within Manasseh. So he is within his tribal territory, that of Gideon and all of the followers of Gideon, all the family of Gideon. And so he goes down to Shechem in the southern part of the territory of Manasseh and he assembles his mother's clan together and he talks to them and he says, look, we need a king. I should be that king because I'm a son of Gideon, the Shofat, through whom we've had 40 years of peace who gave this great victory over the Midianites. I'm reading into this, of course. He doesn't spell all this out, but probably he did. I mean, the scripture doesn't give it all there. He's reminding them of what a great man Gideon was, and then since he was the son of Gideon, he ought to be considered for the kingship. And then, of course, to, to make it clear that he had a greater claim than the other sons, because I am a Shechemite. I am one of you. Well, his clan members thought, good idea. Why don't we do that? And so they went to the elders of the city. Now, in those days, frequently, the elders would gather at the city gate every day. And, and of course, the idea was there that they would carry on civic duties. They would judge the matters of, of the city. But, of course, it was a jawing session for the most part, where they'd sit around and, and just have a good time talking. Anyway, they, they met together, and the members of... Uh, of Abimelech's clan came to the city elders and probably some of the clan were city elders and explained this whole thing to them and managed to convince them that this would be a good idea. They asked them whether it would be better to be ruled by one man from their own city or to be ruled by 70 men who didn't live in Shechem or even near Shechem. The implication was that we better for them to have a unitary rule through one of their own than to have a plural rule through strangers. 
Well, it was very appealing. And the elders said, no evidence that the 70 sons of Gideon were seeking power for themselves. There's no evidence that they were out trying to rally the troops so that they could become plural leaders over the land of Israel. In fact, of course, we know their father had said, no, I will not accept the kingship. God will be your king and my sons will not rule over you either. So Gideon had declined the kingship for himself and for his sons. Now that's usually pretty final. When you go back, for example, to the history of Russia, and when Nicholas II, the last of the Russian czars, was forced to sign a, a declaration of abdication, he was forced to sign it on behalf of his son also, which in effect terminated the czarship in Russia. And of course, as we know, uh, the termination was uh, <laughs> brief in terms of producing a democracy, about a six-month democracy, and then the Bolsheviks took over and the, things were worse than they had been under the czar. But it was permanent. It was, it was complete. It was all over with. I don't think there's very many people in Russia today who really seriously consider bringing back czars. And so the sons of Gideon, I don't think, had any thought of, of becoming king or rulers within, within Israel. But the ploy worked very well. It created a sense of urgency. Oh, well, we better choose this man before those 70 come and, and cause themselves to be our rulers. And we don't know them, but this man is blood of our blood. He's our kin. He's our brother. And that's the literal meaning of the word there. It's, it translates here. He's our relative. The Hebrew word means brother. He's our brother. And of course, for his clan members, he was a blood brother. For the rest of the people of Shechem, he was a community brother. I mean, you know, he was one of the brethren in the broader sense of the term. To support his campaign to become Israel's first Melech, first king, the elders of Shechem made a campaign contribution. We know about campaign contributions, don't we? <laughs> Big issue in recent years in our society. Campaign contributions. Well, they make a campaign contribution to him. They, they give him 70 pieces or shekels of silver out of the treasury of Baal Bereth, Baal of the Covenant. Where's God? Where's Yahweh? Well, we know what happened to Yahweh, don't we? We just read it back in the 8th chapter. It said that after Gideon died, all of Israel played the harlot with the Baals again. How quickly have they forsaken the God who delivered them, the God of Gideon? And you remember tragically, although Gideon is reflected later on in Scripture in Hebrews as one of the great men of faith, he did make a big mistake in creating the effort of gold, which became a kind of a replacement for Yahweh and led people into the beginnings of apostasy, which now are fulfilled as they return back to the worship of the Baals. I think that as we read through the book of Judges, we're constantly saddened by the quickness with which Israel reverts to type, reverts back to the flesh. But again, as, as we've talked about before, if we look at it and are honest about it, we have to recognize, <laughs> but for the grace of God, there go I. You know, there, where we would be as soon as we cease to depend on the Lord. So here's Abimelech. Is he appealing to the God of his father Gideon? No. He's accepting money from the local Baal. They took the money out of the local treasury, which was very common in those days for the treasury of the various gods to help finance political matters. 
70 pieces or shekels of silver. What are we talking about here? Well, in today's economy, we're not talking about very much. As you know, silver sells for roughly $5 an ounce, give or take a few cents right now. <laughs> That's not much. And of course, a shekel is just a tiny fraction of an ounce. So we're only talking about, I, I figured it out, in roughly 13 bucks in our economy. But we can't look at it in our economy. We have to go back to Israel in those days. And in Israel in those days, it's roughly been computed that one ram, male sheep, which was the most valuable of all the sheep, cost two shekels. So we're talking about the price of 35 rams. Now, in a shepherding society, an agricultural society, that was a significant amount of money. So it's, you know, it's, it's a worthwhile amount of money. You know, he wasn't made rich overnight, but it was enough money for him to do what? To hire a goon squad. <laughs> a hit squad is what it turned out to be. He ran around town and found the local riffraff who were unemployed. Come on, guys, I got something for you to do. Bring your sword and come with me. The literal meaning of the Hebrew here is that they were desperate and desperate men without moral restraint. Without moral restraint. And that becomes very clear in what happens next because as you read down in the fifth verse, you have one of the bloodiest verses in Scripture where we read that, well, let me read the fifth verse again, and then he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. He hid himself. <laughs> this verse describes what kind of a person Abimelech really was. A man who would hire a gang and would then slay his own blood, his half-brothers. Now, of course, there may have been some animosity there, I mean, he may have been treated a little bit like Joseph had been treated by his brothers, you know. Joseph was pretty badly hated by his brothers when they sold him off into Egypt because they were about to kill him. It could be that uh, Abimelech, because he was the son of the concubine, was looked down on by the other 70, and so he may have had animosity toward, him, toward them to begin with. And so it wasn't totally cold-hearted murder here. It was a bit of a vengeance in his heart here. Now, think of the practicality of this, though. I mean, how was this actually carried out? It says he murdered his 70 brothers on one stone. What in the world can that mean? Well, first of all, many uh, scholars feel that on one stone is a euphemism for murder. doesn't mean they were literally all brought and, and slaughtered on a single stone, but that they were all murdered, that it was an execution deal that happened here. The question is, how in the world do you round up 70 guys and execute them. And what were they all doing at Ophrah at that time anyway? I mean, Jotham, who is the youngest, we're told, of these, is old enough to, to as we go on in the chapter, we'll discover he stands on a hill and proclaims all, the word of the Lord, in effect, to the people. I mean, he was a man. So all of these were adult males we're talking about here. Now, how do you get 70 adult males to line up and, and walk single file and get their throats cut or whatever happened here? You know? Well, I don't think you do. So we have to think about this for a minute. How, how did this happen? They must have been having a family reunion to start with for them all to be here. Because I don't think all 70 of them naturally lived in Ophrah. They probably lived, you know, in a broader area than that. This concubine and her son lived all the way down in Shechem. So they may have been having a family reunion. 
So did he use trickery? Was there subterfuge here? Uh, was there an intimidation factor? How many were in his goon squad? Um, did he catch a few of them at a time and, and murder them and catch another few at a time and murder them? Well, we, those details are not given. All we know is that all 70, less one, 69, were slain, except for Jotham, who hid and escaped. Uh, you know, where were their friends? Where was the local Ofra militia? <laughs> Wouldn't they defend the, their own blood from this area here? Wouldn't they defend Gideon's sons? Well, none of those details are explained. So I guess it's up to our imagination to try to figure out how it actually happened. But the upshot of the whole matter is the 70 sons or 69 sons of Gideon were slain, murdered, butchered, executed. What happened to Jotham, though? How is it that Jotham was the only one who heard? Well, obviously, God had his hand in this. Somehow, God rescued Jotham. And again, we can think of all the details. Jotham somehow got word what was happening and thought, you know what, there's something suspicious about this. It doesn't sound right. I think I'm going to hide out for a while. And of course, when you're slaying 70 people, you lose track after a while, you know, I would suspect. I've never tried it. And so apparently, either Abimelech didn't know that one had escaped or he said, well, what's one? We'll never see him, him again anyway. He's just a kid, kid brother. Well, all of Abimelech's potential rival, rivals and those with a better claim than he are dead. So he went back to Shechem and had himself proclaimed king in Israel, Abimelech. The men of Shechem were told and of Beth Milo. Now Beth Milo means house of the tower. Most feel that this probably means that there was in or adjacent to the city of Shechem, the, the tower, the final place of defense, the donjon, if you will, the bailiwick. And so the people who were part of defending that all joined in with the general crowd from Abimelech and they met together to acclaim Abimelech as their king. Now it's very obvious that they didn't go through what we're going through now. I mean, I, I can remember a few years back, it wasn't too many years ago, when we didn't start candidating for the presidency until at least into the year of the election. But now, I mean, how many months have they already been campaigning? And we're a year away almost from the election. It's really pathetic. But at least we get a good look at all the candidates, don't we? Or at least we get the news reporter's view of the candidates, whatever that might be. Had anybody done an analysis of the character of Abimelech? I don't think so. <laughs> you know, you, you would think for a minute if they would think, now this guy just took a bunch of the of the rowdy guys of our community. He went up there and he killed all his brothers. Is this the kind of guy we want ruling over us, you know? Well, maybe he kept a lot of that quiet. Who knows? We're told that he was acclaimed king at the Oak of the Pillar at Shechem. Let me go back to the 24th chapter of Joshua just for a moment. 24th chapter of Joshua, the 26th verse. Joshua is now at Shechem. And it says in the 26th verse, And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak, which was by the sanctuary of the Lord. So this is the pillar of the sanctuary, the stone that he erected upon which the, the name, the, the word of God was uh, carved. And this was at the site where they had stood on one slope of uh, Mount Ebal and the slope of Mount Gerizim. And the word had been proclaimed earlier on in the 
before the conquest was complete. And the people had sworn to follow Yahweh there at that very site, the God of the covenant. And so what do we have? Abimelech coming to that very site, hoping that somehow the site will sanctify him. The site will make all of Israel realize this has got to be the king because he's following Baal Bereth, the Baal of the covenant, the God of the covenant. Not Yahweh, but minor detail, you know. Uh, you know, the covenant uh, God here at this holy site, which was so important in the life of Abraham and the life of Jacob. And then at the time of the conquest, as Joshua led Israel for this proclamation that Moses had ordained through the word of God, they had read the curses and the people said, Amen. And these people now were living the curse. Obviously, Abimelech and the men of Shechem had no conception of the truth that sovereignty is God's alone to give, not theirs to claim or to grasp. It is God's alone to give. God raises up and God tears down rulers of this earth. Let's read on in uh, Judges 9 at verse 7. It's a fascinating little account in here. Now, when they told Jotham about what? That Abimelech had been crowned king. He went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted up his voice and called out. Thus he said to them, Listen to me, O men of Shechem, that God, Elohim, may listen to you. Once the trees, and he, and he tells this little parable, once the trees went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my fatness with which God and men are honored and go and wave over the trees? Then the trees said to the fig tree, You come reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go and wave over the trees? Then the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my new wine which cheers God and men and go wave over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the bramble, you come reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you are anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the very cedars of Lebanon. This whole passage helps us to, to understand how authority elevated by humans can be so foolish and devastating. Jotham is the youngest half-brother of Abimelech. And he had hidden himself, as we read in the previous passage, and escaped the carnage that had fallen upon his brothers there at Ophrah. But the word finally got to him that the man who had perpetrated this, this devastation on your family has been proclaimed king over Israel at Shechem. Oh, you know, to Jotham it was like the end of the world. He could not remain silent, even though he was putting his very life in jeopardy. We're not told here specifically that he went in the strength of God or that he was trusting in God, but we can infer this from the passage. Because in whose strength would he go? In whose words? I mean, these are not human words as you look at them. They're very accurate. They are prophetic. And so he traveled to Shechem. He climbed up on the slopes of Mount Gerizim. Now again, if I can rebuild the picture for you here, you're in central Israel. Shechem is a town which is located just to the east of the valley, very narrow valley that passes between Mount Gerizim to the south and Mount Ebal to the north. 
They're both mountains of about equal height, about just under 3,000 feet in elevation from the summit to sea level, of course. And, and Chequem is, is, is just to the east of the valley that parts those two mountains. A, a main route, a main road goes right through. In fact, that shows up as we go into the next passage, the importance of this main route goes right on through between the two mountains. There, it's a narrow defile between the two mountains. Today, if you go over there, you'll discover that the modern city is called Nablus, which is located there where Shechem used to be. It's where Sychar was, where Jesus, uh, in the fourth chapter of John, talked to the woman at the well from Samaria. This was Samaria in, in Jesus' time. This is part of Samaria. In fact, the Samaritans had a temple on the top of Mount Gerizim, this very mountain that we're talking about later in time, of course, than we are. He, traveled, he, he climbs up on the slopes. Now, it says the top. It's very unlikely he went clear to the top because from the top of Mount Gerizim, it's a long yell <laughs> down to the bottom. We've been up there, and uh, it's quite a view, but you don't yell down there. It's a long way. So he went up on the slopes of uh, Mount Gerizim, and he spoke down. Now, remember when we talked about Joshua bringing the people there at the beginning, early part of the uh, conquest, and where he uh, inscribed the word of the law on the pillar, the stone that we just talked about, that he had part of Israel arranged on the uh, slopes of Ebal and part of the uh, Israel arranged on the slopes of Gerizim. And then he proclaimed the word and one group would say amen to the, um, to the positive things, to the blessings. The other would say amen to the curses. And, and that's a natural amphitheater in there. The way it's built, you can speak forth and the sound carries up the slope. So he was up on the slopes yelling down into this amphitheater. And the men of Shechem could hear him. And he proclaims this prophetic parable. And his first words caught their attention. He said, you listen to me and Elohim will listen to you. He did not use the word Yahweh. But God, in the generic sense, will listen to you. Now the ridiculousness of the parable makes the point crystal clear. Obviously, trees don't need a king. If trees have good soil, good water, good sunshine, which they all get from God, who needs a king? What is he saying? Likewise, Israel doesn't need a king as long as they have Yahweh as their God. He gives them everything they need. He provides direction. They need a king like the king. trees need a king. This is the direct implication that begins right off the bat. However, like the foolish men of Shechem had done, the trees decided they needed a king. And so they went to the most honorable and desirable of the trees first. They went to the olive tree and then to the fig and then to the grapevine, which of course isn't really a tree, but is a plant, an important plant. Now, these three trees or plants, however you want to call them, provide very valuable food, fruit. It is still valuable fruit in that part of the world. It's a very Mediterranean kind of fruit. All through the Mediterranean, the fig, the grape, and the olive are very, very important. In fact, where do we get olive oil in this world today? We get it from the Mediterranean basin. You know, we get it from Spain, Italy, and Turkey primarily. Those are all Mediterranean areas. And, of course, the fig was very important. And, of course, the vine has been all important through that part of the world. So these three plants provided very valuable fruit. And they were not inclined to stop, as the olive tree said, giving his fatness and the fig tree giving the sweetness and the vine giving that which cheers God and man. Not about to give up that to take on this other task. They were faithful to their God-given task. The olive tree was ordained to make olives, the fig tree to make figs, and the grapevine to produce grapes. 
And they didn't want to give up a useful job to go and wave over the trees. Now there's, there's irony in this. There's interesting uh, understanding here because in this context, the Hebrew word nuah, which means to wave, implies useless waving. A kind of a wandering to and fro, doing nothing of any value is the implication here of this. So when the trees, when the olive says, I'm not going to give up my fatness to go and wave over the trees, it meant to give up something useful to go do something useless. It's sort of like it was in the words of Benjamin Franklin. Remember when Benjamin Franklin, when they first established the Constitution and got the U.S. government going, uh, he looked at the, uh, the job description of the Vice President of the United States and he said, this man is his superfluous excellency. <laughs> and that's basically what they viewed, the, the trees viewed the king as a superfluous excellency. We don't need him. <laughs> in fact, the, there's a more malevolent interpretation here, and that is that with little productively to do, the king probably would become very mischievous and actually probably a harmful element. And that is what this thing is about as you come to the end of it. Now, the Jewish rabbis have interpreted the olive, the fig, and the vine to stand for Othniel, Deborah, and Gideon, as earlier Shofats in Israel, who had refused to accept the job beyond Shofat, who would not accept the job of king. In fact, we know that Gideon flat out refused to be king in Israel. Now, whether this interpretation is, is correct or not, uh, the olive, the fig, and the vine surely did represent the noble and the worthy pillars of the community, the ones who would do a better job at being king than a bramble, of course. Now, the interpretation of the rabbi seems to break down when you come to verse 14, where it says that finally all of the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. I don't think that Othniel, Deborah, or Gideon would have ever called on Abimelech to be king or wanted him to be king. But of course, the word for trees is not the same word. The trees in general is a different word from the word olive, fig, and vine. They're all separate terms that are specific in their meaning. So it still could hold if it's, if it's looked at, though all the trees turned away from those three and, and then went to the fig and they weren't the ones choosing. The olive and the fig and the vine weren't the ones choosing, but the other trees were the ones choosing. Whatever the case may be. The bramble. The bramble. If you look up bramble, you'll discover this is the primary place that the word is used. Oh, it's used one time in the psalm where it talks about uh, heating pots in the wilderness. And then it's the name of a, of a town. <laughs> it's kind of like the United States where you have, live in tumbleweed, you know, or some other, or weed <laughs> for that matter, <laughs> without even the tumble part. What is a bramble? It's just a thorny weed. Useful only for doing what? The only use for it was to, to get a fire started. Weeds catch fire. I mean, the brambles caught fire real easily, so you put them down there first, put your wood on, and it catches the wood on fire. That's all it was good for, starting a fire. You, you see the application in here. But the, and its shade, who could lie in the shade of a bramble? You know, that's the extremity of it all. The bramble, though, threatened that if you are really choosing me, then you had better come and sit in my shade, or fire will go forth from me, and I'll burn even the very cedars of Lebanon. <laughs> very arrogant words. 
But the meaning is that if you choose a worthless man to be your king, even the strong and the mighty and the worthy in your society will be pulled down with him. Look at Germany, if you will, under Adolf Hitler. A great nation destroyed by a fool. And how it is in history. The men of Shechem would soon see the absolute accuracy of this prophetic parable. Because as we go on to the very next section, it begins to happen exactly. And who does it? God, we're told, sends an evil spirit. And it begins to stir up trouble in the midst. Well, we'll look at that next week.